So to our next guest, you have often commuted in the company um, of the very lovely Liz Hoggard. She is uh, an Evening Standard features writer and interviewer tonight. She is appearing as one of the three co-authors of Dangerous Women, um, and she's going to be talking about her favourite dangerous women in fiction. My money's on her off dangerous liaisons, but we'll see. Please welcome Liz Hoggard. <laughs> The best thing is probably if I explain a little bit about the concept of the book um, and then we can look at how it's absolutely suffused with literature, which is interesting because we've done a lot of interviews about chocolate and cami knickers. And, and so it's really interesting for me to read it again and see how much literature there is in it. And um, that's quite an important choice because you pay quite a lot for quotes, so you really have to ration yourself. <laughs> I think we were totting it up, weren't we, at every point. And also, the sort of women who we have quoted almost unconsciously in extracts, that was a surprise to me, even though you know, we've read it a number of times. So the idea of the book is, it's called Dangerous Women, A Guide to Modern Life, and it's a compendium of female knowledge, of sort of, we hope, and mature wisdom, although none of us are quite there yet. And it's written a bit like a Shots Almanac for women, 600 entries alphabetically with quite a witty cross-referencing system, which I have to thank Claire for. And within that, we have key topics that women are always talking about. But also, we have icons, female icons, from Tilda Swinton to Meryl Streep that we're obsessed with. And we've got quotes from great women as well. So you've probably got Barbara Pym on Toy Boys. You've got Nancy Mitford on Housework. You've got the wife of Bath um, and on cunts, which we feel every woman should look in the mirror and say four times in the morning before breakfast. <laughs> Did you say cunts? What would you like us to have said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we already set the radio warnings ringing, didn't we, with complete wankers. We had to be taken off the stage. <laughs> so that's quite an interesting thing, that it creeps up so much in all our entries. And I think it's something about a female lexicon that it's almost like a language between each other. So we'll say to each other, oh, don't go all Miss Havisham on me. Or um, we've got a section on material girls, those sort of adventurous girls that don't really look after other women. And, you know, so there'll be a, a sort of reference, CF Becky Sharp in Vanity Fair. And it really interested me how embedded in the language that we use it is. And those women are really important. And I think when you're growing up, certainly when we were, sort of depressed, adolescent, <laughs> bookish, <laughs> in the West Midlands. <laughs> Those are the books that are really, really important to you. And they give you a sense of self, and they allow you to dream that you could be something else. And there are these independent women, flawed, you know, battling difficult things, um, often a governess, um, a lot of tears. But they were really, really important. And I wish that I could say, being a teacher's daughter, that it started in a very academic way, but it didn't. Um, I mean, it's, it's laughable now in the days of internet porn for teenagers. But my first book under the covers was called Our Dearest Emma, and it was a biography of Emma Lady Hamilton. And um, I think in the most recent book that Kate Williams did about her, she was pretty much the posh spice of the 18th century. <laughs> Sleeping with various people to get ahead, sort of posing naked on tables at stag parties, um, and sort of striking attitudes. And so I was sort of really fascinated by her, and that set me on a trajectory of reading all those fabulous Jean Plady books, which are 
a very woman-centered view of history. So it's Catherine de' Medici, it's Mary Queen of Scots, it's all those extraordinary women, but told through a rather misty version of history. I mean, I still believe Jean played you rather than anybody else. <laughs> and so I think that that starts to give you a sense of self. It sense gives you a sort of grand guignol idea of these sort of scheming, Machiavellian but brilliant women. And then what starts to happen, I think, is you start to read the school curriculum. So you're, you're reading about Joe in Little Women, or Anna Green Gables, or Jane Eyre, which is the, the classic text. And it's so interesting that that's been re-released recently, um, because I don't think that one ever goes away. And so you're starting to make your way through, and then you're, you're looking at Shakespearean heroines. But the funny thing is, I know Lady Macbeth is supposed to be the great one, but I always found myself much more interested in Beatrice, in Much Ado, and as you get older, you really are, because it's about late love. But I think it's also my idea, a dangerous woman, and our subhead is a dangerous woman, lives as well as she dares, but gives a damn about the consequences, is I think probably to get to be dangerous, you have to go through a bit of a journey. You have to make mistakes. You have to go off course. You have to take the road less traveled. You probably have to refuse to take the fate that has been offered you. And that's why I'm so enamored by those heroines like Isabel Archer in Portrait of a Lady that, or Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch, that they had a conventional route set out for them. They often marry completely the wrong bloody man. And you, you want to wrench them away from that and say, don't do it. But in a way, it's much more interesting that they have to go through that. They do earn it, they do the work, and they get there eventually. And in, in a sense, I think someone like Anne Elliot in Persuasion is, is my great heroine because she becomes a dangerous woman She's this sort of left-on-the-shelf 28-year-old who's lost her bloom. <laughs> she didn't marry the right man. She took the advice of a female friend with a bit of an agenda, let's put it that way. And she's having to watch the man that she realizes she's still in love with flirt with the next generation of young women and deal with it. And yet something about the situation plunges her back into life again. She connects with people. She comes out of her comfort zone. And as Jane Austen brilliantly says, her bloom is mysteriously restored, so better than Botox. And you start to see that whatever happens to her, she's going to be a changed woman and she's going to connect more. And there's this fabulously erotic scene where Wentworth writes this letter to her in the library when she doesn't realise it's going on. And I think that there's something about the dangerous woman who is prepared to change her mind, see that she set off on a journey that was important, but that she might have had to make a body swerve. So the great figures for me are people like Millamant in Way of the World or Beatrice in, in um, Much Ado or even Isabella in, in Measure for Measure. I mean, such a strange, fascinating woman with a sort of sense of self that she's ha trying to hang on to to a point you can't sympathise because she'd rather her brother died than give up her virginity. But extraordinary to sort of explore the complexity of someone like that. And it's been very moving for me, really, looking back at all these books that I read as an adolescent, I wish I read a few more of them. I think if you work on newspapers, you uh, tend to do less. But there's something really sort of extraordinary about seeing how it gave you the language and the ideas to connect. And certainly women of my generation, we do all know the same references. And that has come through very much in this book. And I think you'll find, if you just dip in at any moment, almost unconsciously, we've got a poem by Emily Dickinson or we've got Joan Didion on grief, or it, even when it was us talking about it in a more you know, commercialized fiction way, we wanted to have those voices in there because there's just something 
are like tapping into the mother load that is really, really important. And we have got at the back of the book, we've got a section of books we think you should have read. And I think the rule was that they had to be dead, didn't they, basically? Yeah. <laughs> because there's so many amazing contemporary fiction writers, it would, be, it would be impossible to list them. So it goes from Afra Ben, you know, via Iris Murdoch, Muriel Spark, all those amazing women. But actually, what's interesting in the book is they're abstracted. They're sort of sent out into the world. And I, I really hope that it will chime some sort of recognition. And one of the things I found most exciting in the last year is um, going to see a lot of theatre, how there's so many dangerous women on the stage at the moment. I mean, Richard Beans, The Heretic, Juliet Stevenson was just a great, great night in theatre. Jumpy with um, Thompson Gregg and Dune McGickin. In some ways, I think that's probably where the most interesting look at the 45-plus woman is going on. But I do think it comes back to this body of sort of magnificent women, the sort of monstrous regiment, in a way that George Bernard Shaw would have seen it. But, you know, they're bloody good fun, and they are, they are making a mess of their lives at times, and I think that's something to embody. I love that Liz ended that on, and they're making a mess of their lives whilst <laughs> eyeing the bottle of wine in front of her. <laughs> oh, when, uh, did Nancy Mitford really write about housework? Yeah, yeah she did. I, I haven't read that, because I, I don't imagine that she had knew anything about it, so I'm kind of amazed. Um, I am fascinated and, and very drawn to, to dangerous women in fiction, and I was wondering who you would, who you would choose to be yours. But... Let's talk first of all about what makes women dangerous and to whom they are dangerous at different times. Because um, I think that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that women should be reliable, they should be controlled, they should be stable, they should be sleeping with the people they're supposed to be sleeping with, you know, um, all, all of these things. Is there, is there a consistent definition? Well, they should be these 28-year-old women on the shelf. <laughs> um, no, but th 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 this, has that changed through time, this definition of dangerousness, do you think? I think it does. I think when you're younger, you think dangerous is like falling out of nightclubs at 3 a.m. or, you know, it's, it's chasing after the pretty people or it's making yourself do things that will get you a bit further along the line. And as you get older, I think it's about making really bright choices about your life, about money, about friendship, about life philosophy doing a job that doesn't drive you completely mad. So, but if we're, if we're thinking about fiction, let's think about a character like, um, one, one of my favourite novels to indulge in is Forever Amber. So if I'm thinking about oh Amber right. in, that, in that archetypal, you know, romantic novel, she, she, she doesn't have a choice about the money that, that, that she spends. She has a choice about who she marries, um, yeah. possibly, and where that money goes, you know. So as those, as those choices have changed, um, has, have, has it become more, more dangerous for women or have they become sort of more empowered, do you think, in fiction? I think probably choice, you know, the paradox of choice, which men have always had, makes it complicated because you can only work with the information that you're given and you can't do everything. And I think that's what you're seeing in the 21st century novel, how impossible it is and why are we even setting ourselves up to do that. But um, I think... So the kind of Alison Pearson model of, yeah. you know, she's got to have it all, how does she do it, you know? No, yeah. exactly. I mean, some of something like Bad Blurge, Laura, mm. Sage is, is one of my greats, because it's that first-person voice. It's somebody who's rebellious, who knows they're not doing the right thing, but is absolutely compelling. And I, I think as well, you know, you're allowed escapist models, so how wonderful to be a selling great expectations, or mm. to be Madame Merle, you know, to behave badly, 
not to have to take the consequences. But in the end, I can't follow it through. And it's interesting because I suppose Bellet, for me, is the great, you know, even now, it's, it's like the life of a, you know, a complicated woman who's trapped in a job she doesn't like, who's fantasizing about relationships she may not even be having. And yet there's a magnificence about that. And she isn't even on Facebook, so it's <laughs> just she's just speaking out. Um, I, I think it's it's really interesting this this idea of you know how 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 choices how choices change mm. people um, and the choices that that are available. And I was thinking about the the the, the dangerousness of women, whether or not the choices they make 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 them more dangerous or less dangerous, and should they should they care? You know, when you when you're reading those books, are you willing them to be? Ever more reckless, never more savage in their love affairs, um, or are you or are you thinking, oh, settle down, you know, get and take the nice man, you know, when you're reading them. Well, I think it's interesting. I'm, you know, I, and obviously, Pride and Prejudice is another book that keeps being remade that has a lot of relevance to 18-year-olds as well as you know people of our age. And I, I think there's that great dilemma, isn't there? Would you be like Charlotte? Would you marry the Reverend? Because you have quite a nice house. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't be there very much. <laughs> you'd have children. You'd have status. And you don't think like those Bennett girls that you're going to have the easiest time of it. And there is a bit of me that could almost make that decision. But then I look at something like, um, you know, the woman in white, our great mustachioed heroine. (laughs) And, you know, she she turns out to be quite hot, actually. Of course, it's with this sort of terrible, devilish, you know, male protagonist. But I think it's giving a space for those women. It it was just remarkable to me. And you often connect with a sort of slightly marginalised outsider. Yeah. Ideally, she wouldn't stay like that. And actually, Claire and I were debating about whether Portrait of a Lady is a happy ending or not. I was saying, well, you know, she's quite a good stepmother. Maybe she just has to let go of the other stuff. And you were saying you found it very heartbreaking. I, I think that, you know, th- y- there's that kind of projecting yourself in, into, into the role as a reader. And I wonder about, you know, you m- making the choices that you've made in your life. Do you, do you feel you've been dangerous enough as a woman? No, but I think that's the great thing. It never stops. So, you know... Look out! (laughs) (laughs) But I think there is a ticking clock and it's not a dress rehearsal. And I think the most interesting women in fiction are starting to realise that. And and the worst thing to do is to live an inauthentic life. Mm. It's not really about money or status. But, you know, it's very hard to be around somebody who's living an inauthentic life. That's what Eshi was saying earlier. It's like he's finding it hard to live with himself because he wasn't writing. So let's talk about the, the, the fictionalizing, fictionalizing of real women. Let's talk about Thatcher um, and Meryl. Um, <laughs> My you, only story you, is here. You were out <laughs> with... Um, this, is, this is such a great story. Um, you know, Meryl Streep is the Iron, the iron Lady um, and the movie's out in January, I think. But, but Les was one of a posse of dangerous women who were invited to watch the movie. Well, you tell it. It's your story. Well, I mean, it's all credit to Meryl, really, because she started the evening. She invited us to a private dinner party where she cooked the main dessert, which was just amazing. From so Meryl made... What did she make? With her Meryl hands, she did. Meryl and she made hands. American apple cake from the film Julia and Julia. So we were just, you know, can you imagine, in heaven. <laughs> and it went on at this beautiful Georgian house in Islington that Villa Lloyd, the director... Um, lives in and because they'd worked together on Mamma Mia they obviously have very good shorthand very good relationship and they'd picked quite cleverly they'd picked slightly argy-bargy lefty women um, to, to talk about the, the issue of Thatcher so there was Suzanne Moore India Knight Jenny Murray me all having this dinner party as if this sort of thing happens to us every day and it was <laughs> like it was like Carol Church's top bills it really was <laughs> 
all trying. Was Meryl like shouting through from a steamy kitchen? Is everybody all right in there? Do you want some more drinks? It's kind of like a head scarf. That's how I see it anyway. Well, we're all so cool for school no. that no one talked about the film for ages. And eventually I thought, we're going to have to. I've got to write about it. We're all sort of pretending this, this is the Did elephant Did Meryl watch the, the film with you? No, she didn't. Because that would have been awkward. That would have been tricky. Yeah. But she started it by saying she really wanted to get a group of women over 35, tactfully, um, to, <laughs> to do this because she thinks Hollywood cinema is aimed totally at a 17-year-old fanboy. And she's had enough of it. And she said she wanted to do the film because she was fascinated by Thatcher. Um, she didn't feel goodwill towards her. But she said that anything that she felt smug about was probably noxious and that she needed to question those things about herself, which I think is a very dangerous attitude. Mm. She also said that um, after Mamma Mia, and actually probably Devil Wears Prada, because she was allowed to play an older character in that, because it's about fashion, darling, that they had carte blanche to do what they liked. Um, and actually, she didn't want to do another romantic comedy. She wanted to do a film about the end of someone's life. And she said, I love old ladies. No one else loves them. And she said... That's not true. We love, we love old them. ladies here at the Salon. <laughs> O-B-E-O-M-G, just saying. And she's in, yeah, she's in here as well. She is. And um, she said that she wanted to do something that was about the moment when you realise that you may have made a lot of sacrifices for the wrong thing, and that's very much the left-wing undertow of that film, although it's been written about in very triumphant right-wing terms. And she wanted to look at, can you do it all? What were the choices? Do you lose fundamentally who you were if you go from being the, you know, the, the greengrocer's daughter or whatever? And um, she said the old woman is the lost leader in the room for marketing in Hollywood. But she wanted to look at that. And actually, the way she and Philippa described it was amazing. She said, we saw Margaret Thatcher as the female King Lear who started off you know, with conviction and interest and novelty and went quietly mad and lost complete track with why she was there in the first place. So you know, it's, it's not meant as a completely literalistic film. I think it's already had a bit of a kicking in a way that's slightly unfair. It's very operatic, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Indeed, a dangerous woman. Thank you very much, Liz Hoggard. Thank you.